0: Hi, and welcome to The Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from
1: scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting
0: practices. We're your hosts, Leslie Block and Zoe Bisbing, both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two. Here to help you help your children fully bloom.
1: This episode is brought to you by the ABCs of Body Positive Parenting. Our signature virtual guides provide additional research and resources to help you put body positive parenting into action so you and your care providers can help your children fully bloom. To claim yours, please visit our website at fullbloomproject.com. Today, we're diving deep into the definition of the thin ideal and sharing with you a well-researched prevention program called The Body Project with Dr. Eric Stice, one of the creators of this program. The dissonance-based body acceptance program helps people of all ages resist cultural pressures to conform to thin appearance ideals. The Body Project is supported by more research than any other body image program and has been found to reduce the onset of eating disorders.
0: All body positive parents, especially those of older kids, tweens, and teens need to know about this program. And there is no one better to talk to us about it than Eric Stice himself. As a senior research scientist at Oregon Research Institute, his research focuses on identifying risk factors that predict onset of eating disorders, and we're thrilled to have him here. Welcome, Eric, to the Full Bloom
2: Project. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: So uh, we wanna just start by getting to know you a little bit um, and having our listeners understand who you are and how you came to pioneer this body acceptance program.
2: Yeah, well, uh, we're interested in graduate school, my wife and I, uh, in examples of uh, psychiatric problems that are influenced by culture. She's a sociologist and I'm a clinical psychologist, so we're really interested in culture-bound syndromes, and eating disorders seem to represent the perfect example of that in the sense that there was a a lot of belief at that time that pursuit of the thin beauty ideal was an important generative factor for causing eating disorders. So we decided to kind of really dive deep into it. And at that point in time, there was actually very little research on the risk factors for eating disorders and very few effective prevention programs. In fact, none at that time.
1: So what did you guys, how did you guys start?
2: Yeah, we were really interested. At that point in time, it was just everybody saying, oh, wow, the supermodels are getting thinner, Uh, Playboy Centerfolds are getting thinner, Miss American contestants are getting thinner. Maybe that's linked to eating disorders. But nobody had actually measured pursuit of the thin ideal or correlated with eating disorder symptoms and body image concerns. So we started um, a program of research and actually the very first step we had to do was create a whole bunch of focus groups with adolescent boys and girls and have them say what the appearance ideal is for both males and females and create a scale to measure pursuit of the thin ideal or internalization of the thin beauty ideal.
0: So that's actually a a great moment, I think, to ask this defining question, right? What exactly is the thin ideal? Because I know we've talked a lot about it uh, week after week here, but this might just be a nice time to explicitly define the thin ideal and why it's so toxic.
2: Yeah. So, you know, it was an emergent idea. Nobody had created a scale to measure that. Um, So we decide that we'd really kind of have a whole bunch of young adolescents kind of tell us what they are pressured in terms of appearance ideal for both the genders and you know for women the beauty ideal right now centers around thinness as well as muscularity and fitness and perfect or flawless complexion so freckles are not horribly popular and other things that that cause, you know, rosacea or something like that, that affect kind of how somebody appears. So it's really, you know, what was represented in fashion and beauty magazines back in the 90s, which now is found at home on social media. But it's, you know, it's a relatively complex and narrow beauty ideal. There's not a whole wide range of beauty, according to it. It's really just very narrowly defined. For men, it also involves more muscularity. And, you know, that's equally... Narrow in terms of a, an appearance ideal that we define as a culture.
1: And what have you? What have you found? Like, what made you narrow in on this specifically, and realize this was such a huge risk factor, or the most important risk factor in your in your research?
2: Well, what we uh, originally did, and it was kind of a fun sort of thing intellectually, but I read all the published papers, one of my professors at Arizona State University, Sherlyn Woolchek, gave me her file of all the papers on eating disorders, and I read them all and basically came up with a working etiologic model of how the worst risk factors work in combination to give rise to eating disorders. And the initial model proposed that pressure for thinness by our culture so from parents, peers, dating partners, whatnot gives rise to kind of pursuit of the thin beauty ideal and that pressure for thinness and then internalized pursuit of the thin beauty ideal cause body dissatisfaction. Mm. Now this body dissatisfaction is the next step increases risk for dietary restriction, which increases the odds of binge eating because the hungrier you are, the higher the reward value of food, particularly high calorie foods, but Body dissatisfaction also contributes to negative mood. And negative mood, likewise, increases risk for onset of binge eating and unhealthy weight control behaviors. So this is a dual pathway model. And we conducted a whole bunch of prospective studies, confirmed that each of those variables did predict future onset or escalation of eating disorder symptoms. And we subsequently confirmed that it predicts future onset of eating disorders. And I might add that that same model according to some research out of Italy, works exactly the same way for men. I wouldn't have put money on that, but Hmm. um, the same five variables in the dual pathway model predict onset of eating disorders among males, at least in Italy. Um, interesting. So that, go ahead.
0: I was just saying, that's interesting. I was curious if that's a recent finding.
2: Yeah, it just came out, uh, I think 2017 was when it was published, Um, but it's a, a great Italian researcher who's been, really kind of looking at the dual pathway model translating into Italian culture. And he really argues that the uh, culture in Italy is even more toxic in terms of uh, promoting the appearance ideal than it is in the United States. I'm not really sure how you determine that, but it, it's interesting that way. But yeah, that's uh, uh, research that's just come out recently and it's, it's confirmed it that these five risk factors are kind of the core risk factors for onset of eating disorders. And what we did, I'm sort of an a experimental scientist geek, and <laughs> I decided that it would be useful just because you find something predicts future onset of a pathological condition doesn't mean it's a causal relationship. It just could be along for the ride or something else. But we went through and developed interventions that manipulated each of the risk factors. So we created an intervention for body dissatisfaction, one for pursuit of the thin beauty ideal, another for reducing negative mood, and basically found out that The Body Project, which is really focused solely on allowing young women to talk themselves out of pursuing an unrealistic beauty ideal, had the greatest acceptability when it came to the participants in the groups, and also seemed to produce the strongest effects.
1: And can you tell us a little bit more about that? Like, what about The Body Project (sighs) itself? What is it? How does it work? How have you found that it can reduce the onset of eating disorders?
2: Yeah, let let me define the the concept of cognitive dissonance and then get into the evidence base. But uh, as a clinician at Stanford, I saw a patient with anorexia nervosa, and I was, you know, relatively early on in my treatment career, and after five sessions of trying to argue her out of having anorexia nervosa, I walked into the sixth session and I said, you know, today we're going to try something different and I'm going to ask you to argue me out of pursuing the thin beauty ideal and having anorexia nervosa. So what I did is I asked her to essentially argue against herself for the whole hour and it just really struck me as a very therapeutic moment that she was really struggling to argue against what she had said to me because I would parrot it back what she had said to justify anorexia nervosa in her life and it just seemed really useful so we decided to Create an eating disorder prevention program where we basically gave young women a chance to argue against pursuing a thin beauty ideal. And this is where we decided to kind of use cognitive dissonance as a framework, but there's a, a very big literature on, in social psychology on persuasion principles, and one of those literatures focuses on cognitive dissonance. And in a nutshell, human beings have a very strong fundamental desire To maintain consistency between what they say and what they think. So what we do in the body project is we have a series of verbal, written, and behavioral exercises in which young women explore the negative effects of pursuing the thin ideal. And in so doing, they reduce their pursuit of it because they essentially argue against trying to uh, achieve the supermodel look through severe dietary restriction and they talk themselves out of it. So they reduce or pursue thin BD ideal. So the body project is, is very singular and focused. It's not like we went through and said, let's try to hit each of the risk factors in the dual pathway model of eating disorders, but rather let's just manipulate one at a time so we can figure out which is causally related. And I, I should say that this is very important because there's a great deal of literature that has suggested that dietary restriction is a risk factor for eating disorders and we've been unable to find any experimental support for that. It's, it's a much more complex literature than we probably want to get into, but none of the measures that we use to measure dietary restriction identify people who are dieting. So dietary restriction measures seem to identify people who are pursuing the thin beauty ideal and are unhappy about the fact that they haven't achieved it. Mm. So it doesn't actually, you know, if you measure exactly how much they've eaten using doubly labeled water, somebody above and below the median split on the dietary restraint scale, they, they differ in caloric intake by about twenty six calories a day. Hmm. So but that's that's another side thing. But I think it is really important to experimentally manipulate these variables because we are able to determine that that reducing dieting has no effect whatsoever on onset of eating disorders, but reducing pursuit of the thin beauty ideal has an enormous effect.
0: Well and I, I wanted to just sort of take that in what you were saying because it certainly you're not saying therefore parents you know support your kids going on diets like right but I think what I'm hearing you say is actually if you just focus on the dietary restraint as the risk factor you you miss out on the heaviest hitter which is the thin ideal pursuit but if you go after the thin ideal pursuit as the risk factor, you are capturing the dietary restraint that's sort of baked in the thin ideal pursuit. Because if you're pursuing the thin ideal, you're probably cutting caloric intake in order to achieve said thin ideal. So that that, that actually encompasses dietary restraint as opposed to them being completely unrelated. Is that fair to say?
2: Uh, no, not no? really. But it's uh, it's a complex situation. But here's two facts that are, I think, very important. So a dietary restraint measure, the measures that we've used to predict onset of eating disorders, aren't valid. They don't identify people who are eating less. Mm-hmm. Typically, people who have high dietary restraint scores are overweight and not underweight. It never predicts weight loss. But the most important thing is there's been three interventions that got people to stop dieting and they had no effect on eating pathology. But the one that the experiment that I thought that was the most telling is a couple of years ago it hit a graduate student and I, Catherine Pesnell. That what we should do is take people who identify as dieters and randomly assign them to either diet like they normally diet which is not eating less calories we've learned or not to diet and what happened is when people are, are dieting like they normally diet they don't lose any weight at all they stay totally flat but when they don't diet they gain weight so dietary restraint scales actually identify people with an overeating tendencies that curb it in a transitory fashion, but it's it's not the variable that we all think it is. So it's a very complex mm. literature. But uh, I will say that the more hours that you go without caloric intake, the more you reward circuitry activates when you look at pictures of foods, taste pictures of foods, and anticipate tasting pictures of foods. So true caloric rest- restriction, which is very rare in the real world, does increase the reward value of food and probably increases your odds of binge eating even though we don't know how to measure dietary restriction very well.
1: So what have you found, just coming back to the thin ideal, because it sounds like you kind of identified that risk factor and explored ways to manipulate it or target it and found that they were effective and it it came in the form of the dissonance model. Is that correct, that that methodology created a reduction in the pursuit of the thin ideal?
2: Right, yeah, so dissonance interventions, and it's a broader construct. We use cognitive dissonance to prevent obesity and to prevent depression as well, and it works in those other fields. Uh, Within the context of eating disorders, we just basically have the participants go through and discuss only the costs of pursuing the thin beauty ideal, never the benefits. And we've done, at this point in time, there's been 55 trials have been conducted with uh, evaluating the body project Or kind of derivatives thereof and there's a really crystal clear evidence that if you randomly assign people to the body project let young women talk themselves out of pursuing the thin beauty ideal it reduces pursuit of the thin ideal like it should it actually even reduces reward circuitry response to supermodels so this is one of my favorite studies is we randomly assign people to complete the body project or just an educational brochure control condition showed them pictures of supermodels and average weight women before and after. And what we found is that at baseline, when people looked at supermodels, very thin models, it activated the caudate and other reward and attention circuitry very strongly. But after they went through the body project, that effect went away. And they actually showed greater reward reach response to average weight people, like real bodies, as Hmm. opposed to the, the thin idea.
1: That's so remarkable and like, and just, it's super exciting for me as, as um, a clinician, but also as a parent, you know, of, of young girls, um, even though it sounds like in your research or with the Italian study, it's beyond girls potentially that the impact of doing, at least at this point in time, the body project has on our girls and and, and potentially boys. Has, there, has the body project been studied with boys and men?
2: Yes, yes. Tiffany Brown has conducted um, trials evaluating the body project adapted for men uh, and found it to be very effective for heterosexual men, homosexual men. And uh, there's a researcher uh, down in Mexico who's been running co-ed groups, and she gets really beautiful facts. So the body project works for both genders we focused on women because they have higher risk for eating disorders, but it, it seems to work very well for both men and women. I should say that I think one of the reasons why the Body Project works so well is because it targets the very uh, a very early risk factor. So reducing pursuit of thin beauty ideal seems to also decrease body dissatisfaction, reduce negative affect, reduce unhealthy weight control behaviors, and reduce eating disorder symptoms and future onset. And I think if you just went after negative affect, for example, which you've done in a couple trials, you don't get the wholesale effect on that whole cascade of risk factors. Mm-hmm. So I think we just lucked out and we decided to focus on the headwaters of a risk cascade that is beneficial by going early. And quite frankly, new findings that just came out 2017 suggested psychosocial impairment. So not getting that, not getting along with your family, your peers, your schoolmates, is actually the best risk factor for predicting onset of eating disorders, mm-hmm. beating out even pursuit of the beauty ideal. And what we are learning is basically, for a lot of adolescents, they really struggle to fit in and feel loved and accepted. And they turn to pursuing the culturally sanctioned beauty ideal to gain that social acceptance. Yeah. So we're believing now that we could actually go one step further back and promote psychosocial functioning, helping people get along well with people, have positive, rewarding relationships with them. And that might work even better than the Body Project, but that's going to take us probably 10 years to sort that out.
1: Well, we'll stay tuned for sure. But as parents and for the parents listening, I'm wondering what, if any, what your thoughts are on the interventions of the Body Project being adapted to a parenting practice? If so, how, or if not, what should a parent listening to this podcast take away?
2: Well, I think uh, the combination of, of research on the etiology of eating disorders conducted in the broader field would suggest that sending your kid a message that they're valued and loved the way they are and that they don't have to conform to a particular parent's ideal to be appreciated Is a really critical message as parents. And I'm a parent as well. And I think it's essential for both boys and girls and the folks who fall in between. But the the interesting thing about the Body Project is it's a series of activities. A lot of those activities are simple Socratic questions that you ask your kid What is the Thin Beauty Ideal? What is it defining? How do you define it? And then how do you, you know, you can ask these Socratic questions about what are the costs of pursuing the Thin Beauty Ideal? actually do these same exercises with your kid, and it would probably be very therapeutic. Um, what doesn't work is if you lecture your kid and tell them what you think about this. Um, mm. Kids are very particular. They'd rather discover things themselves rather than have old people tell them how to live their lives. So there's a whole bunch of eating disorder prevention programs that is provided the content that pursuing the thin-beauty ideal is harming, but they don't get a change in how much the kids actually pursue the thin-beauty ideal. So I think that's the The really important part is with cognitive dissonance, we've discovered a way to get people to reduce an attitudinal risk factor that we weren't able to reduce by just education. So for instance, in one of our trials, the control group was doing the exact, covering the same material that's in the body project, but the facilitator just reads it to the the participants. So receiving the information is not the same as discussing the information having it come out of your own mouth. Um, And that's because dissonance is based on if you argue a particular standpoint in a public forum and you do it on a voluntary basis, you surmise that you really must believe the perspective that you're arguing. And it doesn't happen if somebody else tells you that, oh, you shouldn't do drugs or you shouldn't pursue the thin beauty ideal. There's a whole bunch of programs that have tried that straight educational approach. So I think it's important to realize that the body project is successful because it reduces pursuit of the thin ideal by using persuasion.
0: And I want to jump in because uh, especially as I hear what you're saying, I want to make sure that everybody listening to this walks away understanding that, yes, we want everyone to know about the body project, about your research, about the thin ideal and why it's so toxic, but perhaps most important to know about cognitive dissonance because We've had other guests on the podcast, um, and we're kind of get, getting towards the end of this interview where we'll ask you this million-dollar question, but a lot of questions like, what, what do you want to tell parents? And I think that what you're saying about how you know we really shouldn't be trying to talk our kids out of anything with all this knowledge we're getting, but rather plant seeds and almost introduce the idea of cognitive dissonance to them about whatever topic you might be talking about, whether it's the thin beauty ideal or drug use or what have you. So I just wanted to kind of highlight that because I'm hearing you say that this is critical and really having a clear understanding of the research even backing up cognitive dissonance as a very effective way of changing behavior in a positive direction.
2: Yeah, you know, just to sort of illustrate how critical it is, I'll, I'll take a page from our obesity prevention work, but in a nutshell, we had created a, an eating disorder obesity prevention program, and it worked fairly well, and we decided to test how it would work if we added cognitive dissonance. So we just asked people to discuss some of the medical problems caused by obesity, interpersonal strains, et cetera. And just by adding the dissonance layer on top of the regular kind of lifestyle improvement intervention we saw a 42% reduction or a 40% reduction in overweight and obesity onset over a two-year follow-up, just by adding the dissonance kind of layer on top of a obesity prevention, eating disorder prevention program. That one, by the way, produces about the same 60% reduction in eating disorder onset as you see with the body project. So the body project is one of two prevention programs that works very well, but dissonance is a very powerful procedure for kind of changing attitudinal risk. Um, and it's much different than the kind of standard funnel assault, educational assault that most of us professor types think, oh, we just got to tell people that eating disorders are unhealthy, and they'll stop having them. And it's yeah, pretty naive. I,
0: and I, I want to just say, because um, there, there's sort of a, a bit of a debate right now going on about like this term obesity, and sort of how we want to think about that epidemic, because I think we embrace that health at every size paradigm here. But I think what's interesting about what you're saying is that even within that obesity prevention program, the whole program, but also the cognitive dissonance piece, it's people talking to themselves, hopefully in a compassionate way around this issue, as opposed to being kind of lectured by someone else, which can bring up power struggle issues or power differentials and can actually be kind of stigmatizing or shaming. What you're describing is if someone's talking to themselves and creating dissonance within themselves that, I don't know if you agree, but that that actually does seem a, like a bit, a bit of a kinder, more just way of delivering this information as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think they hear the message because they're arguing the perspective. And, you know, there's, there's pros and cons of virtually everything. Um, and so just giving people some space to talk about the cost of alcohol use or, you know, unprotected sexual behavior It would totally talk people out of engaging those risky behaviors. So I think it's a really cool strategy of kind of getting people to internalize it. But there's a lot of facets to dissonance induction. So it has to be voluntary. It has to be publicly accountable. So we put like a video camera in the room to make people feel more accountable for talking out against pursuing the thin beauty ideal. But what's really crazy is uh, in a trial that we're just wrapping up this month, we compared the effects of the body project when implemented by other college students to college students, Mm -hmm. so peer educators versus clinicians like the three of us, the peer educators significantly beat us out Hmm. because kids listen to people that were exactly like them in a way that they didn't listen to professional clinicians. And I'm just blown away. I think that was uh, about a 70% reduction in future eating disorder onset for peer led body project groups compared to clinician, my body project groups, could be 60%. I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but it was totally crazy. Nobody's ever tested that idea, but it totally lines up with that dissonance perspective that if somebody just like you is telling you some message, you're much more likely to give them credibility than if somebody very different than you is, is conveying the same message.
1: So as a, as a parent listening I'm, I'm imagining some people are saying, okay, I want my I want my teenager to do this or my kid to do this body project. How do I get them to do it? And I'm wondering how you'd answer that question.
2: You know, that's a, you know, if they're at one of the 150 to 200 universities that's implementing the body project, it's very possible that they could kind of go avail themselves of that. The groups that are offered uh, there, like at the University of Texas, we've been offering body project groups forever and there's a a steady nice demand from the community but if i were a parent i would probably encourage my uh, school counselors to offer body project groups at the local high schools at the local college it's super easy to do you can read the script which is freely available to download on the internet and anybody can implement this including undergraduates who have no professional training it's just really kind of crazy but If we're going to solve this problem that affects, you know, 13% of all young girls and about 3 or 4% of all young boys, we need to implement these programs on a broad basis. You know, it's not going to really change the population prevalence of eating disorders or even body dissatisfaction unless we really implement these programs broadly.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have to say one of the um, reasons why I personally started this journey into the Full Bloom Project is because I heard you, you speak at an Academy for Eating Disorders keynote panel in San Francisco. I think it was about this, about the body project. And I, I feel that parents need to figure out how to, how to get this to their child, you know, or to their kids. And I want, you know, I want people to know that there is a way to do that, which is to go online and we can supply that information and to encourage their kids' counselors, school counselors to run a a highly evidence-based practice. There's other, there's a lot of other opportunities to do that, but this from what I understand, really has the highest evidence base or has, most, has been most research. I'm not sure how you would put that. I'd love to hear in your words how you say that. But that's my understanding. and I want my listeners to know, like, here's a gem just sitting here online waiting for you to take it to your counselor and advocate for them to run these programs that really work.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So from my perspective, the most exciting data that we've found is in several randomized trials, three conducted today, we found statistically significant reductions in future onset of eating disorders. And that's the holy grail of an eating disorder prevention program, a body acceptance intervention, so, you know, in our in a 2008 paper, we found that people who completed the body project compared to just an assessment on a control condition showed a 60% reduction in future eating disorder onset over three-year follow-up. We've replicated that finding in this ongoing study that we're just going to write up very soon, which is for all of the kids out through four-year follow-up, and it's the biggest trial today. And it's really important to put that in perspective because only one other eating disorder prevention program has done that. And that was actually the healthy weight intervention that we just spoke of. Those are the only two eating disorder prevention programs have been shown to reduce blinded interviewer assessed onset of eating disorders over multi-year follow-up. So it's really exciting. Uh, NIH back in the mid nineties decreed that um, the first eating disorder prevention program was such an abysmal failure that they weren't gonna fund any more research Hmm. trying to conduct uh, body image for, you know, uh, eating sort of prevention programs. And luckily, we pushed forward with it and got some funding from the Hog Foundation in Austin, Texas, that allowed us to really kind of take off with this. And it's been really good. But the other really exciting thing is that um, Ada Gerhardy, who's a professor in Sweden, uh, conducted a project where they evaluated virtual body project groups. So conducted in Google Hangout on the internet totally. So these kids never actually interacted with a clinician or each other, but they did it all online. And really excitingly, they found a 72%, 73% reduction in future onset of eating disorders over a two year follow-up. So I was a consultant on that project and helped train them initially uh, to do that. But the, the good news is with three randomized trials showing that the you know completing the body project reduces future eating disorder onset, we have a a really great solution to a problem that we never thought we could solve and i just want everybody to step back and think about it because what this amounts to is we've essentially written a play that a group of a random group of nine or ten people will get together in a group and they'll have a conversation that we write out in the script and that conversation reduces the odds that kid is going to show onset of an eating disorder is just phenomenal. Like four hours of an intervention to reduce a psychiatric disorder like that is much better than we ever expected, and you know it's obviously critical because eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric condition, which is underappreciated. But it's this is a really exciting time to be mm-hmm. kind of in this field.
0: You know, and I first of all, especially as you said it, it's really it's, it's phenomenal, and I'm I'm imagining that young people that might even fall prey to subclinical eating disorders would be helped as well, that that would be prevented as well, like a subclinical presentation. and, and yeah, I, that's
2: included.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's included. So what I'm thinking is, yes, I want everybody listening to grab the script and read it and yeah, maybe introduce some Socratic questioning at home using the material. But really, this is a call to action. This is like a call to everyone listening, parents, care providers, school counselors to do some kind of like community organizing and almost make this a little bit more mainstream whether it's getting a group going after school or at a camp or I mean any number of other kinds of clubs. I mean it just it's it seems like the issue is not there's no question around whether or not this is effective. Perhaps the question is about how do you effectively mobilize and We've had other conversations about activism, and I feel like this is, I don't know, I feel like it's a call to action.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I I should say that we actually uh, did a paper with a German student, Sina Mueller, uh, maybe back in 2011, and we took all of the trials that we conducted to date, put them all in one data set, and asked the question of whether people who came into the trial with a a threshold or subthreshold eating sort of baseline, whether they showed equal benefit to kids who didn't have an eating disorder. And the answer was no, they showed a four times greater benefit. So in other hmm. words, the Body Project works four times better for people with eating disorders with them without eating disorders. So it's, it's really crazy that way and it actually prompted us to develop the Body Project treatment, which is a dissonance-based treatment for eating disorders, which is an eight-hour, eight-session group intervention uh, that in the best trial so far, we found a 55% abstinence rate after this this eight-hour intervention, and it's it's insane because it costs one twentieth the cost of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is considered the treatment of choice today. So I think we're going all sorts of good places to come up with really short, easy to deliver interventions that will prevent eating disorders and also treat them. <sighs>
1: It's exciting. And thank you for doing so much research. I really I really appreciate the research side of this because there's, I'm sure as you, as a researcher, see kind of so much. The good news is there's a lot of body positivity out there right now, um, much more than probably when you started. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I imagine through your research lens, some of it feels um, like all of your work, it's kind of It's misguiding people a little bit, and this is all of your work has helped you guide and guided you and guided you closer and closer to where you are right now and helped you refine. I don't know. How long have you been researching? 20 years, 30 years?
2: Yeah, it's um, about 20 years.
1: 20 years, you know, like we we have this am, amazing refinement that you've gone through and I, I want people to know like Eric's been doing this work and for you, for you parents um, and <laughs> listeners to just take right now and, and do something with it and I hope that we can help and I also hope that you know, that you'll keep us abreast, Eric, of what's, what's coming out so that if it's even easier for, for families and to access the body project, that we can let them know, too. Um, so, you know, yeah. if, if, if the virtual thing ever happens here in the States or how they can access that, we would love to keep our listeners informed so that they can just make this as easy as possible to get to their kids which maybe we could just wrap up with that million-dollar question, which is, if each parent listening to this podcast took away and did one thing regularly, what would you recommend they do?
2: Uh, That's a great question, and I'll preface it by thanking you for getting the word out to, to folks about the important research that's emerging because it really is vital to kind of share this information with lots of people. If I had to choose one thing, I'd actually encourage parents not to model body image sessions and dieting and, and all that kind of stuff. I think the most, one of the most harmful things is just having a parent who talks all the time about how much you need to diet tomorrow and lose weight and look better in a bikini or something like that. I think modeling is the start, but if I could say two things, <laughs> I, would, I would include asking your kids to credit questions about what are the costs of being obsessed about your appearance and trying to pursue this as ideal how does that, you know, how does it make you feel in social media when you're comparing yourself to all your peers? Is it's, that's a new toxic kind of form that it's in. But I would encourage parents to not model obsession about appearance and kind of strange dietary restriction. Instead, just eat a healthy diet and exercise regularly and then ask your kids to argue about the negative costs of pursuing the thin beauty ideal.
0: Yeah. And I think what we can do perhaps to help bridge the gap is maybe get some of those questions formulated just on the on our website so that parents can know that, you know, here are some questions that they are you know pulled from the body project. And, you know, this is an effective way to ask them. And Dr. Eric Stice says you should be asking these questions. (laughs) It's, It's one of the best things you can do. Great. Well, thank you so
1: much for your time and your, all your research, all the hours that you've worked on pulling together the information that you've been able to share with us and our listeners today. We really appreciate it, and we thank you so much.
2: You're welcome. It's great to talk with you.
0: So, Leslie... You mentioned that you were inspired by hearing Eric talk at a conference, that was at AED in San Francisco. I know you actually started running your own body project groups after that. And I'm curious, what was your experience running them? What was that like?
1: I loved that there's so much research behind it. I felt really good about delivering the content to the individuals, to the group members. I think that the question really for me is how do we get this program to people? And how do our listeners do
0: something with this? Yeah. I was just reflecting on how I grew up in New York City and I think was growing up in a time when this program was in existence. And I had never heard about it. Not in any independent school or public school, any friends. I don't know anybody that was in this program. And even becoming an eating disorder therapist, I didn't know about this program. In fact, I learned about this program through you when you told me about the content and that you were experimenting with offering it in your practice. And I think that reflecting, you know, talking to Eric and understanding what an incredible impact this material can have. And I mean, he is literally saying the the results are even better if a peer leads the group. So we could get these groups going in our practices, but that's not the point. The point is really to advocate for getting these groups in your community and having them be in some ways peer led. And so I guess I'm hoping maybe we can all, (laughs) listeners too, like think together about What would it take to get the word out that these programs work, that they're accessible, they're free online, you know, we're putting it up on our website, and it just requires some action. And I guess I'm finding myself curious, like, what's going on here, that there's this really wonderful intervention that has the potential to really be incredibly protective, and yet very few people know about it and very few people are doing it. So... I'm both venting about that and pondering that and then just, I guess, asking you and everyone listening, what are we going to do about this?
1: Yeah. I mean, as a parent myself, I could and should and want to go to my kid's school and talk to the administration about it, present it as an option, present the research um and see what happens and mm-hmm. i feel like that's a lot of action on my part it is yeah. and it's i think it's a big ask of all parents that are listening but i i feel so strongly about this resource that i think it's one of those big call to actions that mm-hmm. we just i kind of want to make after talking with dr stice i'm reminded This the Body Project is why I started the Full Bloom Project. Mm -hmm. And I want people to have access to this, more people. And Mm -hmm. I hope that some of our listeners go for it, you know, go for it. And I think one of the things as a practitioner that I've found challenge running into running this project is that it's hard to get kids to do anything after school. I mean, There's so many things that they're doing after school that we want them to be doing. We know that this four-session program is highly impactful for many, many kids, for every kid, or six out of ten kids, seven out of ten kids. So I think the best place to do that is where they already are, you know, in school or in some type in their in their sports teams. Like, it's possible, but I don't think that kids want to go into a therapist's office. Mm-hmm. And parents don't want to send their kids into therapist's office for something like this. I think it's better to be woven into something that mm-hmm. they're doing. And you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. Parents, if you want us to run virtual body project groups, let us know. But... I think that's one of the challenges. Yeah.
0: And I think, too, from previous conversation we had with Eric, this sort of the secret sauce of the Body Project, yes, it's the content, but it's also the the delivery. It's having, in the case of young people, young people talk each other out, talk themselves out of this idea. And it's not The same if, like, a health teacher is lecturing about this, even though the content is still useful in the same way that he's saying, like, as parents, we can take the scripts. And I think that I would like to kind of repurpose those for, you know, typical conversation in my household as my kids get older. but really being able to think creatively and we're going to keep thinking creatively too. I think we want to innovate in this sort of, how do we figure out a way to mobilize young people to find each other and have this conversation as opposed to a more toxic conversation. And, and that only four of these conversations, right. When
1: specific topics are talked about in a certain way, are enough? only four right. of these conversations. Um, it's just it's mind-blowing to me. It's exciting to me, but it's yeah. also a
0: challenge. And so
1: I think maybe that's a good place yes. to wrap up. Yes,
0: I, I, I think so too. And hope this episode has inspired all of you to think critically about that thin ideal and how you can help your kids really discover for themselves the value of rejecting it instead of internalizing it. And as always, we're interested in your take on today's
1: episode and what new parenting practice our guest inspired in you. So do get in touch with us on Instagram at Full Bloom Project. And if you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving us a comment or rating on iTunes so more people can learn about the Full Bloom
0: Podcast. And tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom.